Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today we go over the disappearance of Brooklyn Farthing and what happened to her in the absurd chain of events just prior to her vanishing. Small talk is the worst, so let's dive in. On June 21st, 2013, Brooklyn Farthing and her family got together to celebrate her grandfather's 70th birthday. He hadn't been doing well, so this get-together was a pretty big deal. Her family was close, like BFF kind of close. As a matter of fact, Brooklyn, her sister Paige, and her cousin Heather left their grandfather's birthday party together to get ready and go out to a local field party out in Berea, Kentucky. Berea is about nine and a half square miles. It's a pretty small rural town where everyone knows everyone. It's no Canadian Texas, but it is still pretty small. It's made up of huge plots of dense land, thick with trees and brush and snakes. So many snakes. Anyways, Brooklyn had made plans earlier in the night to meet up with her friend Teddy, who is a girl, by the way, at the field party, and then spend the night at her house. So Brooklyn packed an overnight bag and brought it along with her. The three girls head out to the field party, which was right off of Red Lake Road. It's actually a birthday party for one of the people there, and Brooklyn was one of those people who knew everyone. But Paige and Heather didn't really feel as welcome since they didn't know that many people there, so pretty early on in the night, around 8 p.m., they decide to head out. Brooklyn and Teddy stay at the party and enjoy themselves for a while longer. But girl code is broken when Teddy decides to change plans. Instead of going back to her place with Brooklyn, she wants to leave the party with a guy, leaving Brooklyn all by herself with nowhere to go at the field party on Red Lake Road. Unfortunately, I think a lot of us have been in this situation before, and I wish it wasn't true. But looking back at my early 20s, I realized how many times this could have been me. But back to Brooklyn, scrambling to find somewhere to go once the party dies down, Brooklyn winds up leaving with Josh, an older guy who was friends with her ex, Jared, and some extra guy who had been drinking and needed a lift. Josh was a 30-something-year-old who was known around town for regularly attending high school parties. A local says that they would often wind up at the same parties as him and said that the way he came onto girls and the stories she's heard about him just gave her the heebie-jeebies. The three allegedly drive around to check out some horses on Floyd Branch Road that Josh likes to show off. I've even heard that they wound up actually riding the horses. After some alleged drunk riding, Josh drops off the extra guy in the car, and around 3 a.m., him and Brooklyn drive to Josh's house on Dillon Court, only eight miles down the road. What Brooklyn probably didn't anticipate was that Josh had stopped paying the mortgage on this house. It was currently in foreclosure and didn't have a single drop of running water or watt of electricity running through the entire thing. The thing about foreclosures is that the owner now has nothing to lose. The bank's going to take their home regardless of the condition. So you'll see a lot of people steal light fixtures, spray paint the walls, just wreck the house. And this case wasn't much different. 
One of the three windows on the front of the small rancher had been busted out and not like a rock hit the window while I was cutting the grass type of hole. It was more like a here's a bat hold my beer kind of hole. And let's be real, the grass hadn't been tended to for a hell of a long time. Naturally, arriving at this dumpster fire of a home, she texts her sister Paige and asks if her or her cousin can come and get her, but Paige can't because she didn't have a license or a car. Paige and Brooke had actually both taken their driver's license test on the 21st, and while Brooklyn passed, Paige didn't, and her cousin Heather couldn't drive because she had been drinking. But Brooklyn didn't seem to be in distress, so it didn't seem like a huge deal at the time. Paige asked Brooklyn if she wanted her to go wake up their mom, but she didn't want to do all that, so she decides to give her ex Jared a ring to see if he can come and get her. Her ex and her were still on really good terms. They'd actually been engaged, and no one who knows her feels like it was odd that she reached out to him, so it didn't seem like a huge act of desperation, where if it was me and I was reaching out to an ex, the world is crumbling down. She asks Jared if he can come pick her up, and while he says he will, he's working the night shift at a local factory, so he's going to have to swing by after he gets off, which is in three hours. She lets her sister know that he's going to pick her up in a few hours when he gets off work. Brooklyn had plans to go to a car show with some friends the next morning, so she needed to get some sleep and make sure that she didn't ghost her friends. But at 4.26 a.m., not long after asking for at least two separate rides out of that foreclosed dump, she starts frantically texting her ex, saying, Please hurry. I'm scared. Hurry. And then crickets. Silence. Not a single text or phone call. Nothing. For an entire hour. But at 5.30, Jared gets a text from Brooklyn's phone that says, Never mind, I'm okay, I'm going to a party in Rockcastle County, which is a 34-minute drive from the house on Dillon Court, meaning she wouldn't even get to this party until after 6 a.m., and how she planned on getting there is beyond me. Her ex asked her who she was going to the party with, but he got no response, so instead of making the trip to Dillon Court, he believed her when she said she was fine, and he went straight home after work. I'm sorry, but I have a hard time believing that Kentucky house parties are that lit to be popping at 6 a.m., let alone the fact that she would be interested in continuing to party knowing that she was expected to be at a car show in like four hours. And she had just been begging for a ride home. If someone was coming to pick her up, why would she have them take her to another party almost a half an hour away, knowing she wouldn't have a ride home from there either? If someone was willing to come pick her up, you'd assume she'd ask them to take her home, right? Anytime the entire topic and tone of text messages change, my immediate thought is that someone else has the phone and is pretending to be whoever owns it. If it was someone else texting from Brooklyn's phone, their plan worked. They convinced the one person who was going to come look for her that she was fine and that she would no longer be at the location she originally asked to be picked up at. But there's a local theory I got through the grapevine. A lot of people believe that when Brooklyn got back to Josh's house, they weren't alone, that it was more of an after party, which might explain why she felt so creeped out and uncomfortable, but was still able to use her phone without anyone really second guessing her. Anytime a woman is outnumbered by men she doesn't know that well, she's probably going to feel pretty uncomfortable. Add in the fact that it's hot as balls outside with no AC and the pitch black middle of the night in a house with no fucking lights or water and a giant hole through the front window. Good fucking bye. 
Daylight breaks and Brooklyn was supposed to go to that car show on the 22nd, but she never showed, which wasn't like her at all. Her friends and family try calling and texting Brooklyn, but get no response. The calls and texts were all going through. I mean, the phone was ringing, but all they ever got was voicemail. When they can't get a hold of her, they start calling the people that she was with at the party, and they say that she left with Josh, and while Brooklyn's family didn't know him from a hole in the wall, her sister Tasha gave him a call. Josh tells Tasha that it was super awkward being at his house alone with Brooklyn since he was friends with her ex. So he says he left her there alone around 3.30 a.m. to go put the horses back off of Floyd Branch Road. One, who leaves their friend's ex-fiance in their foreclosed house with no electricity, water, or means of leaving? Two, who takes someone to a house with no electricity or water? I mean, it's not like he could shower or keep food in the refrigerator, let alone make any food. Was he actually living there himself, or was this just a place he knew he could take Brooklyn? Three, if he was going to leave the house anyways, why not just skip that part and drive her home like he did his other friend? Josh casually mentions to Brooklyn's sister that he heard her discussing a party in Rockcastle County and says that when he left his house, Brooklyn was sitting on a couch in the living room smoking a cigarette. I'm having flashbacks to the Christian Andriacchio case. I did some fact checking and Brooklyn did in fact have a history of smoking, so we at least know that that's not complete bullshit. But according to Brooklyn's cell phone records, there's no indication that she ever spoke to anyone about attending a party in Rockcastle. The only two times it was ever mentioned was the mysterious text from her phone an hour after telling more than one person that she felt unsafe and when Tasha spoke to Josh. The one piece of information that would tie anyone to her last text communication was repeated by the last guy she was seen with. But remember, this was a text. It wasn't a phone call. He didn't hear her talk about this mysterious party with anyone. In fact, this mysterious party gets even more mysterious. Not only did Brooklyn know absolutely no one out in Rockcastle County, police tried to track down any party that took place in Rockcastle County on the 21st, and they can't find a single one. And then this story takes a huge fucking left turn. And I mean like a fucking swerve down an embankment kind of left turn. 20 or so minutes after Tasha gets off the phone with Josh, he calls her back and tells her that he's essentially freaking out. He tells Brooklyn's sister that when he got home from tending his horses at 7 a.m., his house was on fucking fire and Brooklyn was nowhere to be found. He says he called 911 around 7 a.m. I'm sorry, but that's the kind of shit you lead with. That's the kind of shit you tell police that there was a girl in the house and now you can't find her. And then police start calling her family and friends in an effort to track her down. But that's not what happened. He didn't even answer the phone with, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you called. Is Brooklyn okay? No, he says it was awkward being around her. So he went to tend to some horses. Oh, and by the way, my house spontaneously combusted and she's nowhere to be found. The fuck? Remember, his house had no electricity, and it's pretty hard to catch a house on fire without it, so Josh tries to insinuate that the fire might have been started by the cigarette Brooklyn was smoking. But check this out. The whole house didn't go down in flames. Hell, the whole living room didn't even go down in flames. Just the couch that he claims Brooklyn was sitting on when he left and the floor beneath it. That's how intense and confined this fire was. It burnt the couch down to the shell and burnt a freaking hole right through the floor. The rest of the house, totally fine. 
When was the last time a cigarette, which are literally referred to as fire safe, was so efficient that it burnt a couch to a crisp in a hole in the floor beneath it? Had Brooklyn's ex-boyfriend picked her up when he got off work that night, he would have likely gotten to the home on Dillon Court as the couch was up in flames. But if you ask me, someone made sure that that wasn't going to happen. Brooklyn and her phone were the only things missing from the house on Dillon Court. The rest of her stuff, her purse, her wallet, her clothes, her shoes, were all left inside of Josh's shitty little foreclosure. Brooklyn's friends were literally at a car show having a good time and waiting for her to show up at any moment. Meanwhile, across town, Josh knew that the very last spot he had seen Brooklyn had gone up in flames and everything but herself and her phone had been left behind. Naturally, Brooklyn's family feels like they're being punked. They're holding out hope that one of their phone calls will be answered, that maybe she's with another friend, maybe she accidentally slept in somewhere else, but no. They're being told by a guy that they've never met that the last place she was ever seen has been reduced to a wooden frame and a hole in the floor. Within 24 hours of her disappearance, cell phone records show that she received one thousand calls from people trying to get a hold of her and they continue to call her until her phone dies three days later brooklyn's phone had been fully charged but she never used it again people don't just stop using perfectly good fully charged phones her last ping was said to be around blue lick road about half the way between the house on dillon court and the horses on floyd branch road which means that it's probably within a few miles radius of that specific cell tower i'll add a photo of this map to brooklyn's highlight at the top of my instagram at the heather ashley this is just miles away from where savannah spurlock's body was found and people can't help but compare the two disappearances both young petite blondes, both from Richmond, both get into arguments with the person they were supposed to go home with, both leave the place that they're at with two men, both wind up at a creepy-ass house in the middle of nowhere. Brooklyn's mom officially reports her daughter missing after 24 hours with no contact, and this is really the first police are hearing of her. The fire department had simply treated the fire at Josh's house like a fire. I suppose he failed to mention the missing girl when they were dousing the flames as her belongings scattered the rest of the room. Both her mom and her stepdad say that there's no way she would have left all of her stuff behind, let alone ghosted everyone she knew. She wasn't depressed. She was close with her family. She had a ton of friends. If she was going to walk away on her own accord, she would have at least put her shoes on, let alone grabbed her purse. Her parents told the Vanish podcast that she was very into making sure that she always looked her best. She wouldn't leave behind nice clothes, her cowboy boots, her makeup, let alone everything else. It just doesn't make any sense to them or anyone else who knew her for that matter. This area between Redlick, Dillon Court, and Floyd Branch is rural as it gets. I'm talking the trees have faces and the squirrels talk to you kind of rural. It's not like there would be anywhere for her to walk, even if she wanted to. Firefighters and police investigate the asinine coincidence that is the flaming couch and the missing girl who was last seen on it, and unsurprisingly, the fire department deems the fire as suspicious. Couches are usually made of synthetic material, so lighting one on fire and catching it ablaze like this one did is going to be a feat of pure magic, but it happened. Try and convince me that there wasn't some kind of accelerant involved. A local says that at some point, someone uploaded a photo of the burnt remnants of the couch with the quote, things got wild at Josh's last night, but once they realized that there was more to the burnt couch than just a burnt couch, the photo disappeared. 
Motive is the mother of all crime, so I have to ask, why burn the couch? None of the stuff she left behind was burned, so if we assume the couch burning wasn't the world's biggest coincidence, they weren't trying to hide any trace of her being there, just whatever was left on that couch. It's like the Chris Wass case all over again. What happened on that couch? The police are seen at the house on Dillon Court bagging evidence and moving the shell of a couch onto the front yard where it sits and sits and sits. Locals say that it sat outside in the elements for weeks before it was ever tested for anything. On the 23rd, police questioned Josh, but the details of that interview have never been released. From what I understand, he's always been willing to talk to police when asked, so I'll give him that. The same day, police make a horrifying request. They ask that all landowners in the Estelle, Rockcastle, Madison, and Jackson counties to keep an eye out for not only Brooklyn, but they specifically ask them to check their land for any signs of her, specifically telling them to pay close attention to any freshly turned earth, like something that had recently been dug or filled in, and to be mindful of any unusual smells. Uh, that jumped to a homicide investigation faster than I think I've ever seen. Maybe the shot comes from police really releasing no pertinent information, which will be a pattern in this case, but holy shit. Not many people knew where Brooklyn was, so whoever's involved in her abduction or murder was likely familiar with the area and knew who Jennifer had gone home from the party with and where she wound up. There's only a two-hour and 34-minute gap between when she was texting her ex that she felt unsafe and when it was reported that the couch was on fire. However, if we want to get presumptive, there's only an hour and four-minute gap between when she was texting her ex and when he got the text that I think we can all agree did not come from her. So the span of how far her body would have made it is going to be a pretty small radius around the house on Dillon Court. We know Josh was back there at 7 a.m., so we'll go with the two-hour and 34-minute timeline. That gives you 115 miles to travel at an average of 45 miles per hour. Now we knock that in half, assuming that whoever was with her would have had to drive there and back, and you've got a 57.5-mile radius around the house on Dillon Court. Wherever Brooklyn went is likely going to be within 57.5 miles of that foreclosed trash basket, and that's not including any time taken to actually commit a crime and cover up any evidence. You know I love maps, so I'll include a map of that radius on my Instagram, at the Heather Ashley, as always, under Brooklyn's highlight at the top of my profile. I've never seen it mentioned before, but if you turn right out of Dillon Court, you'll immediately pass a post office. If you turn left, you're going to pass Big Hill Auto Repair and Tire, Big Hill Food Mart, and Big Hill Car Wash. Did anyone check to see if there was any CCTV footage corroborating Josh's statements of when he came, when he left, and when he came back to the house? To get to the farm where his horses were, he would have had to have turned right out of Dillon Court and would have passed the post office, Nana Sue's, Red Lake Furniture, and Red Lake Volunteer Fire Department just to turn onto Floyd Branch Road. Did any of them have CCTV footage, and if they did, was it ever cross-referenced? Police organized three searches in three separate counties that span more than 1,600 acres using police officers, academy recruits, search canines, cadaver dogs, and even have searchers on horseback like we saw in the Thomas Brown case. 
But nothing. No Brooklyn, no phone, not a single trace of the missing 18-year-old. Now, I've never heard any word of if or where the dogs trace Brooklyn sent or if the cadaver dogs alerted to anything, so I'm going to guess that that's information they're purposefully withholding from the public. Five days after she goes missing, her family holds a candlelight vigil in the hopes of bringing attention to missing Brooklyn and encourage someone, anyone, to come forward. Hundreds of people attend the vigil, but no new leads pan out. Police do a search in the Floyd Branch Road area, saying that, with new information, the area of the horses may have been the last place that Brooklyn was actually seen alive. Now, her items were left behind at the home on Dillon Court, and the third person in the vehicle with her and Josh says that they went to the pasture on Floyd Branch before dropping him off. So I'm unsure where this information is coming from, but it's coming from someone. And regardless, we know that Brooklyn was at the house on Dillon Court at some point in time that night. A few weeks later, more than 200 people volunteered to search an area less than two miles around where she was last seen, and even that comes up empty. Just a few days later, the grandfather she celebrated on the day before she disappeared passes away. Though I'm sure he's thankful for having been able to see his beautiful granddaughter one last time, there's something so tragic about his last days being worried about Brooklyn's safety and not getting any form of closure before his life was cut entirely too short. Brooklyn's disappearance is a huge topic around this close-knit community, and online forums are bursting with rumors, but one by one, people watch the posts about them uncharacteristically disappear. And these aren't the kind of forums and websites where shit gets deleted, so people are starting to wonder if maybe law enforcement doesn't want the information they're sharing to be made public. Shirts are sold to raise money for the reward, and a benefit is hosted to get a billboard put up about Brooklyn's disappearance. August 19th comes and goes. Brooklyn would have been 19. In September, the benefit pays off and a billboard with Brooklyn's face on it is put up in town, the first of many. There's a large phone number included for any tips that anyone may have about where she went or what happened to her. An entire year passes. Two people are arrested for claiming to be raising money to go towards searches and rewards for Brooklyn, but pocketing the money instead. This is the second case in a row that this has happened and it blows my mind. But with all the financial drama, that's all there really is. There are no persons of interest announced, no suspects, no leads. Even the searches seem to have stopped. In mid-2014, Brooklyn's mom hosts a benefit to try and double the reward from $5,000 to $10,000, and it looked like it worked. I checked Brooklyn's website, fryingbrookfarthing.com, and the current reward is set at $14,000. Almost an entire year after that, a hunter was walking in the woods when he came across skeletal remains, something that everyone thought would eventually happen one day. The community is convinced that they have found Brooklyn and can finally lay her to rest, but when the tests come back, the body is not Brooklyn. There's a photo that Josh posted to his Facebook page that circled the rumor sphere for a while. It looks like he was on a four-wheeler when he snapped it. It's a creek with some trees laid across it and what looks like a skull hidden beneath when you zoom close enough. Now, I'm sure that if it was actually something, police would have made an announcement, but alas, nada. But I'll go ahead and add this photo to Brooklyn's highlight at the top of my Instagram at the Heather Ashley. To this day, neither Brooklyn nor her cell phone have ever been found. She would currently be 25 years old. Maybe she'd be married. Maybe she'd have a child. Maybe she would have opened her own bakery like she had dreamed of doing. But none of that has happened. 
the police still have her classified as missing and endangered. Her family feels like they know who's responsible, and frankly, I feel like everyone probably agrees here. But until there's concrete evidence to back it up and secure conviction, there's no case. So not only has there been no closure in knowing where Brooklyn went or what happened to her, her family is haunted with the information of feeling like they at least know who did it, but they're not talking, and in turn, there's no justice. Her mother told LEX18, If she has died, I want her body back home where I can give her a nice family burial, and I will have somewhere to go and sit and talk and cry if I need to. For us, it's six years at the point where I just want my baby back. The community seems to all be pointing the finger at the same person. I talked to one local who said he gave her the creeps and another who said that no one around here believes he's totally innocent. Someone else commented on Facebook that his connections in Madison are the only thing that's kept him out of trouble. Some believe that there was a huge injustice done when it came to the police work in the beginning days of her disappearance. Others in town say that law enforcement seems to have their eye on a specific suspect but are waiting for a smoking gun before they bring down charges. Locals say that all the billboards, banners, and bumper stickers put up across town have slowly deteriorated over time and has almost been symbolic to the trajectory her case has taken. Her case is still open, and the police are still taking any tips they get seriously. They hope that one day they'll be able to bring closure to Brooklyn's case and her family. Join me tonight on Crime Talk Live at 9 p.m. Eastern, where you go live with me and discuss the case and tell me what you think happened. If you love the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get notifications every time a new episode is posted. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating or even a review. We appreciate every single one. Next week, I'll be bringing you a brand new case, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. (laughs) 